So what is it you do? I'm a driver. Oh, like a chauffeur. Well, aren't you mysterious? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> what is your name? Baby. Your name's Baby. B-A-B-Y, Baby. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Baby Driver. People love great bank robber stories, so let's give them something to talk about over their lattes. Hosted by Jacob. You're the best in the business. And I'm not doing this job without you. Arnie. What's his deal? He has a hum in the drum, plays music to drown it out. And Stuart. Is he uh, mental? Mental meaning slow. Was he slow? No. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Watch your mouth. Listener discretion is advised. Shut up. Let's talk it. The explosion. Today we're discussing Baby Driver, starring Ansel Elgert. Kevin Spacey, Lily James, John Bernthal, Isaac Gonzalez, with John Hamm and Jamie Foxx. This is the now playing co-host who has a hum in the drum, Arnie, and I'll be your baby tonight. This is Stuart. And this is the host who likes his peanut butter spread to the edges, Jacob. Well, welcome to our new Edgar Wright review. We never meant to do our Edgar Wright retrospective series, but there was a review of Scott Pilgrim in 2010, and then we did do the Blood and Ice Cream trilogy for donors, available now through our Podbean for our 10th anniversary. So we covered all four films he directed. We were going to cover his fifth film, Ant-Man. Yep. We did cover Ant-Man, but yeah, he was not there. Yeah, it wasn't his film. He said he has never seen it. He was credited as a writer, but when asked if he'd seen Ant-Man while on the press tour for Baby Driver, he said it's kind of like somebody saying, would you like to see a video of this guy screwing your ex? And he's like, no, I'm good. Yeah. And so this is the Rebound Girlfriend then, an original concept, something we don't get very much, something the movie plexes don't get too often. Somebody just doing an idea that has no... I would say even sequel potential. This is a self-contained story. What are you talking about? Isn't this a sequel to Boss Baby? (laughs) (laughs) So many people. In fact, when I told Marjorie earlier this year that I bought opening night tickets for Baby Driver, she got confused and was like, is that an infant who's in a car? She really thought it was like Baby's Day Out. Can we all say it's, it's kind of a bad name? I know my wife heard it. She's like... That sounds horrible. And then she saw the trailer. She's like, oh, that looks really good. But that name turned her off. Maybe because it's a Simon and Garfunkel reference and she hates Simon and Garfunkel, but... Well, it's a deep Simon and Garfunkel reference. It was never a single, but it was on their album Bridge Over Troubled Water. So I don't know how many people got it as a Simon and Garfunkel reference. My wife did, but yeah, she really hates them. So I guess that hate runs even to the deep cuts. (laughs) Edgar Wright did say he has ideas. If a studio were to just say we want to bankroll Baby Driver 2. He has ideas and he has songs in mind that he could use for it. So is there sequel potential? We'll see. But the interesting thing is this is a movie Wright has been trying to make for 22 years. And in fact, the entire time he was working on Ant-Man, his thought process was, if Ant-Man makes a lot of money like all the other Marvel movies, I'll finally have enough clout that somebody will allow me to make Baby Driver. Wow, really? This is a 22-year-old idea. It could drive a car if 
<laughs> let it. That's wow. I wouldn't have guessed that. I, this actually, to me, when I saw the movie, I definitely felt like I'm going to go to something different. This felt like a rebounder. No, in 2003, he actually did a music video for the band Mint Royal. I'd never heard of it. They had a song called Blue Song, and he was doing music videos at the time. And he said that he had no ideas what to do for that video. He's like, well, crap, I've got this heist movie music thing and that I got a idea for for a movie i'll just make that the music video it even i watched the music video on youtube it even had nick frost in it so there was that back there so anytime somebody came to him and said oh your movie's so derivative of insert any movie that's come out in the past 15 years it's like yeah let me show you my 2003 music video that was basically the opening of baby driver that says, I mean, I think all of his movies, you look at the Blood and Ice Cream trilogy, yeah, he does do derivative stuff, but he puts a new twist on it. I wouldn't hold that against him. He's always going back and hitting the greatest hits of a genre and remixing them and producing something very entertaining. Yeah, I think that he shares a similarity aesthetically with Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, that whole pack. He went to Tarantino and he went to... George Miller before actually producing this film. Oh, could you imagine an Edgar Wright, George Miller, Mad Max film? I want it. <laughs> he said that Mad Max Fury Road is the best car chase movie ever. Obviously. And so he wanted to definitely talk to George Miller and get his input before doing this. He talked to J.J. Abrams. He like went around and did the rounds of talking to people before he actually put this thing together. And so you can tell some of that pays off. But yeah, he Quentin Tarantino is even thanked in the end credits. Mm. And so he thinks of this as a car chase movie, primarily. I was wondering if this wasn't maybe his musical. It is kind of a musical in that regard, too. It was very choreographed. He said it was the first time that a choreographer had worked with a stunt driving team. It's the first time, I, I guess maybe La La Land, but I haven't seen choreographers in the opening credits of a movie credited in a long time. I do feel like he took that popularity uh, that you see it a lot in trailers, really. Let's make a great music video. And then with Guardians, with, you know, here's this great playlist. He took that concept and just really ran with it and did something even better, you know, created a whole chase musical out of that concept of having a good soundtrack. And I feel like waiting for the next generation might have helped him too, because Generation X, we don't really like musicals. We didn't have good ones growing up. We didn't even have good Disney movies. Hey, I'm Jet X and I loved Grease. Yeah, yeah. But again, <laughs> if you can name three, I'll be impressed. Grease, Grease 2, and Xanadu. Now, I didn't like them, but I named three. <laughs> I think you meant three great ones. <laughs> I, yeah, I meant good ones, and Grease sucks, by the way. And there was that pirate movie musical. Yeah, okay. You're proving my point, but... Kids today definitely grew up between all the Disney movies, High School Musical, and yeah, just credible movies like you just said. Last year, La La Land. Best picture for about five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. It definitely feels like a genre we're more ready to embrace. Just the whole idea of flash mobs. It's more cool now to be able to sing and dance than when we were growing up, or certainly the 90s. I remember when I got my first iPod, I was a grown man married with a job being an adult. Like this person in this film, baby's going to get his first iPod and he's a baby. Yeah. And that was what I was thinking about when you said this has been around so long. I was like, oh, this feels like an appeal to the millennials. This actually feels like someone older, someone like me, who's thinking, what are people like today that are young? It's surprising to me to know that this was an old idea. Oh, yeah. It's funny in the 2003 
music video instead of an iPod, of course. Even though the iPod did come out in 2001, it wasn't overly popular. So he's flipping through. Remember those CD wallets you used to have in your car? Yeah. So he's flipping through the CD wallet and then putting the CD in. So it was interesting to see the different technology and it was on the car radio it wasn't through the earbuds it wasn't a full-fledged script it was an idea and he'd been picking music and saying this song will be a great car chase song for literally 22 years and he had basically eight set pieces in mind from previous thoughts that when he sat down to write a script and do this now, I know we're recording this earlier than we normally do a weekend of release. I guess, was this officially released on Wednesday? Because I saw it Tuesday. Yep, me too. Yeah, you, I, and Marjorie went together to see it in theaters Tuesday night. It had a Wednesday release because it wanted to get the head start on Despicable Me Part 3, I guess. Because <laughs> those are going to be in competition. Although there is, I suppose, an R-rated comedy, The House, Will Ferrell, and Amy Poehler, that maybe they're trying to get the head start on that. Because I do think they're going to try to split an R-rated audience. It's counter-programming two different movies against Despicable Me 3. I just feel bad for Edgar Wright, because I know when Scott Pilgrim came out, that way underperformed. It did, what, like $10 million in the box office in the U.S.? And based on my audience, not a whole lot of people there. I'm sure it's going to be better than Minions 3 or The House. I just don't know if it's going to make the money those ones will because it's Edgar Wright, and I just don't know if he has that name appeal to mass audiences. Well, they did have confidence enough to move it up. This was originally going to come out in August. And I think when they took it to Austin, to South by Southwest, and have seen crowds respond to it. That's the right crowd for this, though. Yeah, they know people are going to like it if they see it. But yeah, it's hard to get people to see something they've never heard of. Definitely something that sounds so obscure. What is a baby driver? It does sound like an animated movie. I wouldn't go see. Well, they have hopes for this film, even this weekend. Just coming into it, while the studio is kind of predicting a 15 million opening, places like Box Office Mojo and things are saying it's going to be a 20 million opening. If it opens at 20, that's above expectations, and I think the studio will be happy with that. As compared to, yeah, Scott Pilgrim, that's a movie I absolutely love. We're covering it in the book, because even though you guys did a podcast on it, I wasn't on it, and I feel that is a very underrated movie I strongly recommend, and it costs six. 60 million to make and like you said it made 10 so it would be nice to see edgar wright have a bona fide success that said he's in the studio system you know this is a studio film he's got made so was scott pilgrim so were the blood and ice cream trilogy he's got people who realize he has a vision that is unique and He's definitely one of my favorite currently working filmmakers. I mean, he doesn't come out with films all that regularly. This is only his fifth film, not counting his 90s independent A Fistful of Fingers, and this is his fifth movie. I've seen all of his films theatrically. When we went to this, I was a little disappointed because it was shoved in Theater 5. It was only on one screen, and it was a tiny screen. But when we got there, it was pretty full. I think there were 50 or 60 people in a 100-seat theater. I was surprised because they were playing this. I didn't see it on the XD, which is like a fake IMAX, but they were playing it on that screen, maybe because it was a Tuesday night, and if you're going to have a more obscure film play on that screen, I guess a Tuesday night is the night to do that as opposed to Transformers or Wonder Woman, but I was surprised they were showing on there. I didn't see it on there. I went to the regular screen because they have the seats that recline far back and I like them <laughs> but I was surprised to see it was on the larger screen format oh I felt really bad because it of course starts with 
that thank you for actually Edgar Wright actually says thank you for getting off your couch and coming to the movies <laughs> like well that's a little offensive to think that us Yanks just sit on our couch and when we're not sitting on our couch we're sitting in a movies theater after we sloth our asses in there but he said during that minor backhanded insult see this movie as large and as loud as possible and I'm sitting there like it's actually, Edgar, I can barely hear you, and the screen we're on is not very big. So as large and as loud as possible was not that great after seeing every other weekend of release movie we've done pretty much this year in IMAX. Yeah, it was loud in the theater I went to, which was nice. Would have been nice if we had gotten that. But it does beg an interesting question. This is an original concept, and I think by design, some of these action scenes... They're a lot less flashy than the stuff that we're used to. Certainly, Fast and the Furious would demand a whole lot more spectacle. Is this a theatrical release? Would people consider this worth full ticket price to see in a culture where we've been told that the only time you need to go to a movie theater is when it's a giant franchise IMAX blockbuster? This is not that film. No, but... I do think that actually the sound was decent once the movie started. Edgar Wright's little plea at the beginning didn't use all the speakers. The rest of it did. It was decent audio. And I think there's some great car stunts in here. We'll talk about it as we go through. The fact is, this is virtually 100% practical. As compared to the Fast and Furious films you talked about, Edgar Wright in some of the online things, he talks about other car films that use CGI and they actually showed the Fast and Furious scene of the Dubai when it goes from one building into the next as he's talking about how people can just tell it's fake. This was, his quote was, real cars, real locations, real people. He said you didn't have to give their actors much motivation when they're actually in a car that's drifting at 80 miles an hour. They're going to give you the reaction you want on film. And they had so many cameras mounted to these cars. I think you can tell. I think you can feel it. Oh, yeah. I think that the Fast and Furious would be lucky to get the adrenaline this film does. And my pulse definitely, I actually checked it. It quickened during the car chases. Yeah, Stuart, you bring up Fast and Furious. I feel like I don't need to see that on the big screen because they come out every year. Why bother? This, I feel, one, because it is those practical chases. We'll talk more about them, but you know, this is better than anything I've seen in the Fast and the Furious, and it helps to have it on that large screen just when you're going around all these roads just to keep track of how everything's moving. I, I just feel that is helpful when you're seeing something in real life, when you're doing these donuts and these drifts and everything. And I've seen it in theaters three times now. I went opening night Tuesday with you. I went Wednesday evening, and it was another packed house, really. It was kind of difficult to find a seat. And then I went just before this recording, so I'm very fresh on it. And two out of three times, there was nobody on their phone. That middle time, there was somebody right in front of me, just had to check Facebook every 10 fucking minutes. And so it was really nice to see it in a room without distractions. I think there's just a benefit to a theatrical experience in that way. Well, then let's get into it. You saw it three times. Arnie, you give the plot. We will talk about Baby Driver. When he was a child, Miles was in a car accident. His parents were killed, and he was left with a bad case of tinnitus, which he dealt with by constantly listening to music, starting with the first iPod his parents gave him. He grew up in the foster care of Joe, a deaf man played by C.J. Jones. And in his youth, Miles started stealing cars, including one car owned by crime boss Doc, played by Kevin Spacey. To repay Doc for the car, Miles, now known as Baby and played by Ansel Elgort, 
became the getaway driver for all of Doc's heists. For each job, Doc keeps the majority of the money as Baby pays off his debt, and Baby scores each of the heists, picking the perfect song to which he choreographs his moves, driving the entire time with earbuds in. When the movie starts, Baby is almost paid up, and one more job makes him even. And when the gig ends with murdered security guards, Baby wants out of the criminal life despite Doc's offer to keep driving and keep a full cut of the pay. Baby has other interests, including pursuing attractive waitress Deborah, played by Lily James. But a date with Deborah is interrupted by Doc, who threatens to hurt both Deborah and Joe if Baby, who he calls his good luck charm, doesn't keep driving for him. So reluctantly, Baby comes to the job, which he is to run with three others. The gun-happy Bats, played by Jamie Foxx, and the in-love couple Buddy and Darling, played by John Hamm and Isa Gonzalez, respectively. Baby tries to skip out so he and Deborah can hit the road, but he's caught by Bats, who seems ready to kill Baby and Deborah. So Baby goes through with the job, robbing a post office. But when Bats needlessly kills a security guard and pulls his gun on Baby, the driver responds by intentionally crashing the car and killing Bats. On foot, Buddy, Darling, and Baby flee the cops, but Darling is shot down. Buddy blames Baby for the whole mess, so he waits for Baby at the diner with Deborah as his hostage. Baby and Deborah escape to Doc for help, but Buddy, in a stolen cop car, runs down Doc and goes after Baby and Deborah. Baby outdrives Buddy and pushes the cop car off of a parking garage ledge, but Buddy jumped out at the last minute. He shoots his gun once near each of Baby's ears, deafening the boy. But with Deborah's help, Baby shoots Buddy in the knee, and he falls off the parking garage ledge into the burning car. Deborah and Baby try to make a run for it, but are trapped by police and FBI roadblocks, so Baby turns himself in. He's sentenced to 25 years for his part in the crimes, but eligible for parole in five years. And we end with him exiting the prison and finding Deborah waiting for him, and they kiss as credits roll. So we're going to get into that. Before we start, though, tinnitus. Have either of you had experiences with this? No, and I kept calling it in my notes, tintinitis. And I think that's when <laughs> your hair is orange and sticks up in the front. But uh, no, I, I don't know anything about tinnitus. I actually have tinnitus, and I've had it for several years now. It's very weird when I introduce myself as the host with the hum and the drum. I literally have this, and you will literally find me listening to music or podcasts or something almost all the time, or running a white noise generator, because yeah, I have a persistent whine in my ears. And they mentioned in this movie, Barbara Streisand has it, and I watched a 1985 interview with her talking about it to Barbara Walters, and she's like, I hear things no one else can hear. Like, she's hearing freaking mystery sounds and things. And Barbara's like, do you see things other people don't see? <laughs> like, she's seeing interdimensionally when, in fact, Barbara Streisand has hearing loss. What that is, is when you have a little bit of hearing loss, your brain makes up for it, and you have this persistent whine. And in my case, after a few years, my brain's been able to filter it out. I have good days and bad days with it, but some days I don't notice it unless it's perfectly silent, and other days I can't get it out of my head. I will say this movie screwed with me because the first time we went, I was having a bad day. This movie... It opens with that ring. <laughs> it does, and it's slightly tonally different than the ring I have but at times I couldn't tell if my ringing was in my ear or from the movie and that's part of the reason I saw it three times is so I could see it on different ear days and figure out exactly 
how the movie is portraying tinnitus, but it's a really realistic thing here is that listening to music, listening to anything can stop you from hearing this persistent, annoying whine. And I think that the self-cure that our main character is applying is the wrong one. Wearing headphones and playing music all the time is only going to make the problem worse. But it's what he has to do. It depends. I mean, you're not supposed to listen at high volumes and such, but... Which he does. Yeah. He has it for a different reason. His may not be hearing loss. It could be scarring or something else on the eardrum. He got it as a result of the car accident where his parents were killed. I don't pretend to be an audiologist. The worst thing about tinnitus, I have seen multiple doctors. There's no cure for it. It's, we're so sorry you have this annoying thing in your life that will be there till you die. Sorry. Have a good day. Here's Mm. your bill. Managing it. Yeah, well, that is a bummer. Sorry to hear that. I can't believe that now playing is good for you in that way. It's certainly (laughs) Transformers movies can't be good for you. I'll uh, just say I didn't have tinnitus when we started now playing. (laughs) But anyway, I take it to mean that Baby wears his headphones. Yes, there's a tone and he'd like to block it out. But mostly it's because it's the metronome by which he does his jobs. That he is a getaway driver for all sorts of criminal activity here at the opening. It's a robbery of the Bank of Atlanta, and he's going to soundtrack it to a specific song that is, I presume, the exact length of what the job is going to be. In this case, Bell Bottoms by John Spencer Blues Explosion. Yeah, like you said, Jacob, it starts with that whine, and as that song Bell Bottoms comes in, most of the sound goes away. We start with some, you know, the whine, some traffic sounds, car doors, And then all of the wine goes away, the music comes in, and I've noticed that throughout the movie. When the music isn't playing is pretty much, there's almost always a wine, and even the sound effects, the car doors, the car engines, you hear it a little bit, a truck backing up, but mostly you hear the music. And I think one of the things this film does well, because it is kind of a musical, is express where Baby is at his life with music. We see him at this opening heist, listening to Bell Bottoms. He's in a good mood. He's in a happy place. Sure, he's helping some bank robbers commit a crime, but, you know, he's bobbing his head along with the windshield wipers to the beat. And we're going to see this change as we go to different songs during different heists. So I I like the way Edgar Wright uses this music like you would in a musical to express the emotions of a character. And there's a soundtrack for Baby Driver that came out about a week before the movie and I'd been listening to, it is 30 songs. It's not every song for the movie, but it's just about, and in the order of the movie. I didn't know a lot of these songs and a lot of the 70s music, so I got to hear it for the first time, and it definitely is in the opening here, some really feel-good music. Baby is enjoying what he's doing, and he gets to sit in the car while they do the hard work. Yeah, what I'll say in general about the music is they were really smart with the crate looting. Like, I would hear stings and I'm like, oh, I know what that is. That's House of Pain Jump Around. Yes. Yes. And then you're like, oh, no, we went back to the original. And he does that so often where I'm like, oh, Dr. Dre, next episode. No, it's not. And then he fools you right at the end. You hear Shaft, but it's Young MC doing some riff on Shaft. So, yeah, he really went obscure. And he did that intentionally. He specifically went to songs that were known samples and went back to that. So De La Soul used Detroit Emeralds and things like that. So it was some of the stuff that he went after. 
I was tripping out when they go to Hocus Pocus by the band Focus because the Vandals, a SoCal punk band, cover that song. I had no idea it was a cover, but I'm like, wait, this isn't the Vandals. This is a someone else. Someone else did a song this weird. Yeah, it's a music education. I feel if nothing else, this movie will teach you a lot about where popular jams you know and love came from. Yeah, except for Tequila, where he didn't use the original version. <laughs> he used a cover version of that with a drum solo. So, yeah, he wanted to use different stuff. And he said that, Jacob, as a punk fan, you'll probably enjoy this. There was a documentary on The Damned that came out, and one of the band members, Dave Vanian, is ranting, saying no one remembers The Damned. Whenever there's a punk documentary, it's always The Pistols, The Clash, The Buzzcock. They are one of those overlooked great punk bands. That's true. He's like, why aren't we on movie soundtracks? Why isn't The Damned's <laughs> music showing up in films? And Edgar Wright's just sitting there watching this like, you will be, I promise. Just give me a year. <laughs> <laughs> We're just driving down the price so that we can buy it. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> a lot of these music rights were bought before this had studio affiliation. Edgar Wright was going through, but he said, you don't start a film called Baby Driver unless you know Simon and Garfunkel are going to sign off on it. So they got the rights cheap by going to the bands before Sony was involved. Yeah, Edgar Wright is established, so maybe he can write a script in this way, but this is definitely something they teach you in screenwriting class. Do not write a script around musical cues that you have to have because they're usually not going to be available to you. And no one wants to buy a script that's about very specific songs. Yeah, we talked a little bit about that when we discussed Cat's Eye with Stephen King, the way the director made every breath you take so central because it would put the studio over a barrel and they'd have to pay the police for the song <laughs> even though they didn't want to because, yeah, it'll cost a lot. Well, basically what Edgar Wright said is if they don't know how important it is to your movie, they're not going to try to extort you. And also the bands were happier and labels gave it a little cheaper because most songs were played in full versus just in the background. It's actually advertising the songs. So they saved a little bit of money that way. He said this didn't cost nearly as much as you'd think for the music, but it's a great use of music. I love how when they're coming out of the bank, it not only was Baby dancing to it, the film is cut to the beat of the music. It's the kind of stuff like I like to play with in Final Cut Pro myself doing. You know, this isn't a musical in that people sing and people dance. It's a musical in that the film is cut and the music is so central to it. That's where it differs from La La Land. Every Edgar Wright movie, really, there's a beat to it. We talked about with Scott Pilgrim. like That was a very fast beat and it was hard to keep up with that one. But yeah, all of his movies, I feel, have beats, whether he uses that through montage or whatever. So this one is just more central. You, the way the cars are moving to the beat, the way the characters moving to the beat, it's all up there up front. I actually think it's even character driven. Like if he knows that if he's not hearing music, then it's going to hurt him. So he, in those moments, he's listening for rattles and things in the room to turn into a song. And we'll even see later that that's what he does with the audio recordings of the heist and stuff that he creates. He is in some ways, a DJ mixing it all. And they could have gone full on. I would have been cool with it. Honestly, I think they could have pushed this idea further. If they had made this a musical, I would have been cool with it. I'd say that the music is more central in the first hour. And the first hour is also more heavy on comedy. It comes right away that they're doing this heist and the three people going in, we've got Buddy and Darling, who will be come back later in the film, and Griff, who's John Bernthal. We, he's only here at the beginning. The Punisher. He's got to kill himself now. 
Oh my god, John Bernthal is having quite a career for somebody who I started off only knowing as Shane from The Walking Dead. He went on to do a movie with The Rock, Snitch. But now I can't turn around without seeing John Bernthal. He's The Punisher. He's got his own Netflix series as The Punisher. He was in that Ben Affleck movie, The Accountant. I didn't know that when I rented it. He's got quite an action movie career going, and I've liked him in just about everything. I think he's definitely the breakout star of Walking Dead. But not the breakout star of this movie. They barely use him. I was shocked at how little he's in the film. But I do like his name. Got definitely a Warriors reference, Griff. Yeah, the way he gets in the car, he points forward as if to say go, but Baby immediately drives in reverse. I mean, it's funny immediately, and it just shows how good a driver he is. Part of me is thinking, much like I thought with Transformers, Baby is drawing attention to themselves. If they don't realize these guys are the bank robbers, they're still going to pull them over for breaking a multitude of traffic (laughs) laws. Right, but this is why you would hire someone like them. Otherwise, you'd think of some other way to escape incognito with disguises or what have you. But you hire this guy because he can outdrive everyone. And yeah, you know, I am on the record. One of my favorite Fast and the Furious movies is that third one. Unpopular choice, I know. But it's because drifting is cool. And I think this movie definitely has a lot of fun showing that off. Yeah, it's too bad that one doesn't prove how cool drifting is. This movie does. Yeah, I I was definitely thinking of Drift King during this. The way he yanks that parking brake and takes all these turns. It is some really cool stuff. And again practical stuff some of it Ansel even drove himself it was nice to see Atlanta used too I feel there's a lot of shooting going on with Atlanta right now and usually they're disguising it for other places case in point the recent Fast and the Furious they'll use some shots there and say oh yeah that was Cuba or whatever but this is actually set in that city it's a city I know I was born in and I think they show it off well here yeah I've been to Atlanta several times Dragon Con is down there and I've been to Dragon Con When they're in the downtown area, I definitely know it from that convention. The weird thing about Atlanta that I don't think people would guess is there's a lot of hills to it. It's not a flat city. And this was something where Edgar Wright, when they found out Atlanta's offering this crazy like 30% incentive for filming there. That's why so much is filming there. Walking Dead is filmed in Georgia. All Tyler Perry. He actually went to Atlanta and rewrote the script to use Atlanta as a setting versus having done that in the first place or trying to make it look like something else. And the few Atlanta listeners we have have come to Facebook and posted they loved seeing streets they know in their movie. I mean, much like Stuart, you've said in Transformers, you knew the Chicago streets and so many movies, you knew the LA streets. The Atlanta people are getting that fun feeling. Yeah, I wish they had used Spaghetti Junction better. It's mentioned here. They don't totally use it, but yeah, you got to love this opening. I'm going to argue the best car chase in the movie is this first one. Unfortunately, I think that's true as well. We're never going to get something better than this. It almost ends up not being a car chase movie by the end. Yeah, I agree. I think the first hour is the strongest, and there's two car chases in this first hour. I think they're both very well done. There's one time where he does, they call it a 180 in, 180 out, where he's going between like a backed up semi truck and everything. And that shot was done with a drone, by the way. Just kind of cool that they can just get a 4K drone to make movies with. That shot right there is better than anything in the past three Fast and Furious films. It's just incredible stuff. But they got to 
get you in, right? And this car chase definitely does it. I think the next scene does too, but it's the scene that just sells you, you're in a musical. This is Edgar Wright doing a almost three minute long take. This is a touch of evil kind of Orson Welles shot. Three minutes choreographed to music filmed on real Atlanta streets of baby going on a coffee run. I feel like this is the most Edgar Wright scene. Like we talk about how dense his films are and there's things in the background you got to watch and in world's end he told you the whole movie in the first five minutes if you were able to decode it and that's what you get with this whole musical scene here there's the lyrics to the song and the background into the graffiti you don't get that throughout the rest of the film i feel like this is edgar wright trying to do something different but for this musical number here this is fully edgar wright and there is a whole history of this kind of anti-hero in crime movies i always think of Alain Delon in a movie called Les Samurai from the 60s. Very influential French cool, and it's been remade in various ways unofficially. I think Drive with Ryan Gosling is a ripoff of that movie. But the idea that you have a hero that doesn't need to talk. He's silent. He's stylish, and he has a gimmick that allows to speak his cool for him. And I think this is the millennial update of that character. My biggest problem with this film is maybe the characterization. I went and rewatched The World's End after seeing this because that's the Edgar Wright film I've seen the least. I haven't seen it since theaters. And that reminded me like how deep he could get with characters. And this film, with all the characters, it feels very much like let's reference old car movies or crime movies. Yeah, I was thinking Ryan Gosling. I was thinking James Caan and Thief. I don't know if these are deep characters, but they're stylish and so you want to watch them. I think there's a history in which they are kind of one-dimensional and that's kind of what makes them cool. Chow Young Fat, Ghost Dog. There's so many movies. Clint Eastwood, obviously, a large part of his career is being that kind of steely. I don't need to talk. I let you know my gun and my shooting do it for me. And here, this is a guy armed with his iPod. That's a fun millennial take on that character. But yes, later when we get into his backstory and why he's doing what he's doing, it is a little thin. I'll agree. He has the most motivation of anybody in the film. But watching it three times, every character surrounding him is an archetype. It is a very flat characterization. He's the only three-dimensional character in this film. I don't think he's three-dimensional either. Huh? I think he's stylish, though. I think everyone's stylish in this. They're cool. You enjoy watching them, which if that's all there was, if there weren't some great stunts and great music, that might be a problem. But I'm willing to go with it because, one, I know Edgar Wright. He likes to do that. He is like a Tarantino where he's going to take old things and remix them and update them. So I'm still able to enjoy this. Could it be a better movie if there are deeper characters? Of course, but I enjoy the style of the film. There are ways that I feel like they definitely could take what's so cool here and have made it so much better, but the choice to make Baby silent makes him cool, and I think his central conflict is kind of set up here in these early scenes. One, it comes from Griff. He says, one of these days, you're going to have to get blood on your hands, meaning he's going to have to grow up. He can't be a baby. And then, of course, he's got his whole mother issue. Griff sets up the entire thing. I've noticed there's the line, you can't be in crime without being a little criminal. And Baby doesn't think of himself as a criminal. He does think of himself as better than them. I mean, it's quite literal when Griff says he wants to keep his white shirt clean. He's sitting there, he's dressed like Han Solo, if you guys didn't notice, with the black vest and the white shirt. Okay, I'm not the only one that noticed that. No. Because I was definitely thinking Han Solo throughout the entire film. Who was? Baby. He's got that Letterman's jacket, but it looks like a black vest on a white t-shirt like Han Solo wore. And the black pants and the fact that he's such a cool pilot 
pilot slash driver. Yeah, he's the Han Solo of this movie. But one thing Edgar Wright does so often with his films is he tells you everything that's going to happen in the film in subtle ways early on. And he does that here in several different scenes. Griff being the one who's basically going to tell us the entire arc of the film. And then Griff is going to die. He says, if you don't see me again, I'm dead. And we don't see him again. I've listened very closely because when he gets off the elevator, he looks left and right to make sure no cars are coming. I keep listening to see if there's a sound effect of him getting hit or something to tell us he died right there. Well, Doc also says he never uses the same crew twice. I guess he bends that rule. He can use the same people from different crews, though. Yeah, same exact crew. He'll never use the same foursome. I wonder if you listen real close to a radio broadcast. There's a lot of TV news moments in this. I wonder if somewhere in there they slip in that he might have gotten killed. I thought that that might be an inside joke buried in here somewhere. He also makes the point he's either hard as nails or scared as shit. And, and this is to my point about what's frustrating about Baby. Is he either? I never get a sense that he's scared and I never really get a sense that he's tough. No, he's hard as nails. I think you see that later on. He doesn't have a reason to make a stand. So he's just going along for the adrenaline and the fun of it when he meets Deborah and has a reason to stop people from doing things. And when things get bloody, I get the impression that on all the heists, he's been driving for Doc for what? Many years, I will take it, since Doc's going to tell the story of the spirit of 85, which isn't 1985, but instead a little kid who took the cops on the run down I-85. That was 10 years ago. And sometime between then and now, he boosted one of Doc's cars and had a lot of merch in the trunk, as Doc will say. So to repay him for the stolen items, Baby's been driving. But I think he's been driving for years. Yeah, I think if Baby was scared as shit, he wouldn't keep his cool as much as he does at the end of this film. Well, I just mean as a character. I mean, it's never a good idea to have a character the way that they present him here, indebted with no clear sense about what he'd rather be doing. And in fact, when we get to the point in the movie where he's free, he doesn't have any idea what to do. This is the cliche, and I saw this right away in the trailer. They didn't hide this, or else maybe I would have been more upset that this was a one more job type of crime film, which, again, is such a cliche, but they told us that up front. It's what does he do when he's out of crime? Yeah, and I think you're right. He doesn't do much. And this is an actor who I don't know, and truthfully, I was a little bit worried about coming in, because when I saw this cast list, I mean, you've got a couple Oscar winners in here, you've got John Hamm, highly respected, you've got John Bernthal. Flea. He highly respected for one TV <laughs> show, I want to add. His movie career is terrible. Two TV shows. He's really funny on Kimmy Schmidt. People love him on that. But Ansel Elgort, we talked about him when we did the remake of Carrie, and I think we all agreed we didn't expect to like him when he came on and he won us over as Tommy, the one who takes Carrie to the prom. Yeah, I saw that he played Tommy. I don't remember him on that film. I'm not a big Divergent person or all those teen young adult romance films he's been in. Yeah, the claim to fame. I think the thing that people love him for if they know him, it's if they saw Fault in Our Stars, which is really good. Not my kind of movie, but I recommend it. It's He's really solid in it. It's a teen romance about cancer kids. And yeah, I'd be surprised if you weren't moved to a little bit of misty eyes by the end. And he's part of the reason. I can get his appeal here. I think he works in the way that this script has structured the character. We like him. And that's important. He sells that he is a millennial wrapped up in his own world, and yet he has an ethic. There are people that he cares about, including his foster dad. Yeah, Joe there, 
it does make him sympathetic that he cares for Joe and that he isn't you say what would he rather be doing I think he loves the driving I mean he was boosting cars for fun beforehand and now he has just a mission to do it but I think he would have kept driving for Doc had things not gotten bloody that's what I was saying when I was trying to hypothesize how long he's been driving for Doc is it seems like nobody's ever been killed on any of these runs until Bats gets involved later but because he's caring for this deaf old man making him peanut butter sandwiches trying to change the TV channel away from the news that his baby is a wanted man for the drives he's doing it helps endear him to us I don't know who this actor is, C.J. Jones, who plays Joseph, the foster dad, but I really like this relationship, and I felt like something could have been done with it. Like, I get that baby is out after that last job because of the way Joseph reacts, and I do like that he's a deaf character. I get it because baby can't hear. I'm sure they're going with a theme, but I just thought it was neat to see someone with a disability and just on screen, and they're still able to communicate. You just don't see that a lot. It's just something different that added to this film for me. I felt like Joseph was the moral center, but again, I don't know if much is done with that in the film. I, I just don't feel it plays out the way it could have and, and have the same impact. He's one of two father figures, Doc being the other one. Doc appealing to baby's impulse to do crime, speed, adrenaline, and... Joseph being the one with a moral compass who says you can use your talents to make people happy. They actually did use a deaf actor, too. So maybe the reason why you haven't seen him is too often we don't have representation. They would get a famous person normally to play a deaf character. I can only think of Marley Matlin, a deaf actor who has actually gotten to portray in a leading role being deaf and i really like how they portray him here and while there's not much for joe to do he's pretty much in addition to being deaf he's in a wheelchair he's got multiple things wrong with him he mostly just sits there and watches the tv with of course the subtitles on and and that tv is in this film edgar wright's way of doing what he often does foreshadow what's to come in the film at the very beginning <laughs> you mean like Monsters, Inc., which is going to be a big deal later on? Yeah, it actually has the line from Monsters, Inc. that's quoted. There's also some bullfighting, and it's going to foreshadow or foretell what's going to happen to Baby because there's the bullfighter there, Gaston, and the narrator says, Gaston is running out of time. He had his tries on horseback. Now he must try to end this on foot, and that's going to be kind of the last chase as Baby has to have a foot chase after he couldn't get away in a car. So I'm not quite sure what little rascals or fight club had to do with it but it's difficult to know but i do feel like edgar wright does have a lot of end jokes it's one of the things i always appreciate about hot fuzz or the world's end is how many little ideas later we're going to see when he's making his mixtapes and creates his was he slow mix that there's all of these other ones how fun it would be to listen to mozart in a go-kart or angel or enfant terrible or all the things that he has cassettes of put that soundtrack out i agree yeah was he slow was done by Kid Koala from the Gorillas, and he also provided the little flashcard reader that he used there. I had to look up what that was after the movie because I didn't know that. Apparently a flashcard reader used for vocabulary learning type things in the 80s. And even Joe, you know, Baby is all about the audio. Joe is completely deaf, but I really like the shared moment where Baby is dancing around and Joe's listening to the music, quote unquote, because he touches the speaker and feels the vibrations. Even though he's totally deaf, he's able to connect with Baby on the 
thing that matters most to the kid. And, you know, it occurs to me, Joe never does call him baby, does he? I mean, he's mostly talking through sign language, and so we're reading it in subtitles. But that may just be his code name. He introduces to himself as everyone as baby, but we find out at the end his name is Miles. Of course, Miles is still a driving reference. How many miles did you go type of thing? I didn't think about it if Joe really knows him as baby. Yeah, no, baby is definitely the code name. I mean, Bats was going to have some Bats tattooed on him. He's the baby-faced one. He's the young one. The reason why they're calling it Baby Driver, it's the whole real subtext of this movie. It's about, let's just get into his backstory. When he was a baby, when he was a little kid, he was in the backseat. And we'll find out that his parents, who had a very tempestuous relationship, looked physically abusive to me. We only saw selective moments. But basically, it's about how he has had to process again and again being in the backseat, watching all of this violence. Now he's going to be given an opportunity to take the front seat and save a mother figure from another abusive kind of father figure. Thus, I think it's a little pathetic that he's hanging out at the very diner that his mom worked in all those years and falls in love with this girl simply because she has a nice singing voice. Is it pathetic? Now, here's the thing. I know that one waitress says he's been going in there since before even that waitress started. So maybe he is going to have memories of his mother. Yeah. But he spotted Deborah during the coffee run. She's walking by outside while he's getting his coffee. She's wearing that yellow dress. And so I also got the impression he went there to see Deborah. No, I thought it was a surprise when she walked in and ended up working there that he was not expecting that. For me, because so much of this is cliff notes it's greatest hits it's i guess i don't have too much of a problem with this i think it could have been done better but I, again it comes back to i like the style i like when he's making music when the music's playing so i i'm willing to see where it goes yeah and i want to stress that i like this relationship i like this actress they do have good chemistry together but when you think about it it's kind of dull like why does she like him well because he's cool that's why exactly (laughs) and so they could make these more interesting more rounded more detailed characters they could give them more conflicts the fact that it's so flat is in my mind the difference between good and great yeah i don't know this actress at all not a downtown abbey fan i've seen wrath of the titans i don't remember her in it at all (laughs) And I haven't watched Pride and Prejudice and Zombies yet, so I don't know her. She's very attractive, though. She has great teeth. I was just fascinated by her teeth in this film. They're so straight (laughs) and so white. I mean, just perfect teeth. But I wish there was more to her. I mean, it seems like her entire job is she's working doubles. Every time he wants to reach her, he just has to call the diner. He never has to call her house. I wish I knew more about why he wanted her beyond she's attractive. I get why she wants him. He kind of does the David Caruso from Jade. You're so mysterious. Maybe. I mean, is it not unlike Scott Pilgrim in which he's kind of fallen in love with an idea? Here it's Freudian. Here I'm just in love with my mother and I need to relive that because it was ripped from me so violently. And the fact that she's singing his mother used to sing when we're introduced to Deborah in the diner. She's singing... B-A-B-Y, she's literally singing his name, but she's awfully flirty for being with a customer. I gotta say, she must be attracted to him right off. They're really quickly ready to ride off into the sunset together. She talks about she had to take care of her dying mom, so there's a little bit there, but it is thin. 
And I do like their conversation around music, like how many songs are there with Deborah in the title versus Baby. Oh, we're never going to run out of songs to listen with your name in it. So I actually do care when she's put in danger in the second half of this movie. Like, I do feel that tension, but it could have been done a whole lot better. But because I like this dialogue, I'm going with the relationship here. Yeah, it's just very simplistic, I guess, is all that I'm saying is that it's not a very deep movie. It's just I'm not going to get really into this movie because it's not going to go really into these characters. Which is not to say that exactly as you put it, she's very likable, I root for her, I worry for her, I want them to get together, but if all that they want in life is just to get in the car and drive, it's not a particularly exciting goal. It makes you wonder why, indeed, does he need to get away from this life of bank robbing. I wish they had better chemistry, though, because they have some great written dialogue that I just think could have been delivered better by somebody else. It's almost a Hepburn Tracy type dialogue. Like she's asking of your order, have you decided anything yet? And he goes, you are so beautiful. And her comeback, you just decided that? I don't think she sells the lines. And the fact that she has a tag that says Jonathan, and she's like, oh, I just started. He goes, as a Jonathan, their rhythm for a musical where rhythm and beat and timing is everything, here it's off. These lines could zing. Yeah, I, I did like the Deborah and the Debra. Yeah, I mean, there is verbal play here. Could people do it better? I guess, but I don't know these young actors. I don't know a whole lot of millennial actors. I think they do a good enough job. Yeah, I like their back and forth here. I didn't have a problem with it not having enough of a beat. My problem was, for Edgar Wright, this doesn't feel like a dense Edgar Wright film where, like, Everything is just layers upon layers of meaning and stuff going on in the background. Yeah, this is a thin film. I'll agree. The reason I saw this three times, it's not that I'm in love with this movie and I just, I had to see it again and again and again. I know you were worried there was going to be so much you'd have to catch because there's Edgar Wright. Exactly. I went in worried that it was going to be another dense Edgar Wright film. We get one shot at this podcast. We don't get a retake when it comes out on video and we get to hear a commentary. I wanted to get this show really right because I like Edgar Wright and I think he deserves it. And my feeling coming out of it is that he spent his time on the choreography. He spent his time on the car chases and the music and there was an on-set editor. This movie is Edgar Wright dense. But it's not in the dialogue and it's not in the story. It's in the delivery. It's in the production. It's in the choreography. So I'm sure he put as much thought and as much work into it, but it's not in the areas we're used to looking. Yeah, I agree. When I think about the ones that I like, I mean, I'll just go ahead and say it. I think the stuff he does with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, I think because they're contemporaries. He's the same age. They come from the same background. He can write to them. Having to write for a different generation, younger, cooler, I'll go ahead and say it, and American, maybe he's just not as able to get as specific and detailed as we'd like. I don't know. One thing about Edgar Wright that I'm used to is His previous four films were comedies. Scott Pilgrim was a comedy romance, a rom-com, but there was comedy to them. Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, for sure. The later two films, a little lighter on the comedy, but still there. Here, I feel this is a straight-out romantic musical, except for the second half hour, which really does come into comedy with... JD, who puts the Asian in Home Invasion, and Eddie No-Nos, played by Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. 
Yeah, I feel like the only big laugh this film got is when, yeah, you have Bats, JD, and Eddie. They go and put on their Michael Myers mask, and it's the actor, not the horror icon. Austin Powers and not Halloween. Yeah, that was fun. And they use it in the trailer wisely. It's a good bit, and it's just the kind of thing that Edgar Wright excels at. He really needs to make another horror movie someday. The Mike Myers mask it's the funniest heist since Point Break, right? With the presidents. <laughs> I could tell it was funny because I'd seen it in the trailer and I still laughed when it was in the movie. But come on, JD, who has the hat tattoo because he wanted to increase the chances of employment. <laughs> that was pretty good, yeah. And the what happened to your nose, that's a no-nose, no-no over page one. I mean, I thought their entire repartee, anytime those two were involved, was very funny. It's also where we're introduced to Jamie Foxx, who, in case anybody forgot, he used to be a comedian, remember, in Living Color <laughs> when he'd wear drag? Yeah, Jamie's kind of perfect for this, because he does do music as well, and yeah, he can be leading man, and he can be scary. We've, we've seen him do a whole lot, and I've grown to appreciate him. I, yeah, when he originally came on the scene, wasn't so sure with In Living Color and Bait, but yeah, I think he's <laughs> proven himself time and again, he's more than a Ray Charles imitation. Here's the thing, though. When John Bernthal is playing Griff, I feel like, oh, that's an actual dangerous character. When Jamie Foxx does Bats, it feels more like a comic character almost to me. He is so over the top with his evilness. It reminded me of, I don't know if either of you have seen Horrible Bosses 1 or 2. Yes. But he plays Motherfucker Jones yes, in that. Yes, <laughs> And it felt at first like he was doing Motherfucker Jones when he's like, everybody from the jungle to the trap know Bats. I didn't realize he was going to be a true villain in this film. I see him, and I think of Django. I think of him as a badass. So when he's doing this, I think he's playing it for comedy. And then he replays a lot of Griff's beats. And I get the feeling, like, every crew, there's somebody who's going to pick on Baby for having those headphones. I actually think that there are too many bad fathers in this. There's, like, three. My recommendation is actually, why not just make Jamie Foxx Kevin Spacey? Kevin Spacey, for me, doesn't do a whole lot in this movie movie and it's kind of past his prime as an actor I hate to say it but to me I just feel like it would have been more fun to have Jamie be the mastermind and be having these reservations about baby yeah but see I think Doc he is the mastermind when we get that scene where Bats is concerned that baby's not listening and we hear baby word for word say Doc's plan I don't know if Bats could come up with that and we'll see what Bats is like I feel like he goes off script whenever he can no I get what Stuart's saying though is to bring the two character parts together is to have the one who becomes suspicious of baby also be the father figure so that you don't have the extraneousness because doc does seem really kind of weird in this movie he has a weird turnaround by the end of yeah, it yeah one I, I will just say i flat out don't like yeah, I like him here, though. I did get a huge laugh when he's like, wow, I drew a whole goddamn map in chalk while we've been yes. standing here squawking. <laughs> that is one of the funniest lines in the movie. That is just because he's drawing all these weird lines while he's just doing this horrible exposition that he has to deliver in time to music. And then the fact that he's going to reference that he, he obviously wasn't drawing that map, that some PA came along and drew a map for him and he's going to draw attention to it. I like doc in this movie kevin spacey it feels to me like he's fallen into a specific role and i don't see his character here from that different in his character in 21 which he made what a decade ago 
Yeah, he's uh, smarmy in everything anymore. And sometimes you enjoy it, like House of Cards. And sometimes he's a reincarnated cat in Nine Lives. Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> it is so bad. I've seen it. But most of the time, I really do find that he's just not stretching enough for my taste as an actor. And so, yeah, Kevin Spacey's doing his Kevin Spacey thing. I think it's funnier to watch Jamie Foxx be like, fuck your baby. I mean, I, just, <laughs> I don't know. I just I enjoy what Jamie is bringing here, and it feels edgy and dangerous. That's what I'd like to see with this guy that has baby by this agreement of you owe me but you know right away things are going wrong when bats is introduced like he is so bad you know now baby's gonna get blood on his hands i didn't realize that i you you thought this bank robbery was gonna go smooth listen i thought this was a cool criminals kind of movie i didn't know where the plot was necessarily going And from the trailers and things I'd seen, and I didn't watch a whole lot before seeing this movie, I didn't watch a lot of online stuff, but the one scene I saw was like Jamie Foxx saying, once you catch emotions, you catch a bullet. I thought he was going to be like a mentor figure for Baby. So when he showed up, when I'm seeing this the very first time, I do not see him as a threat. And that changes, though, when they do this armored robbery heist. There's something strange about this scene, and it really bugs me, and maybe one of you guys can explain it to me, but... Baby drops off Eddie No-Nos and JD and Bats, and then he pulls the car up like 10 feet just so we can't see the heist. And then he backs the car back up 10 feet to pick him up. Is there any reason in the movie why they do that? No, I felt like that was throwing it off his rhythm. He was going to move up 10 feet. Like, that's part of that damn song he's going to play. Neat, neat, neat. And yeah, they're not on time. We'll see. He has to rewind the track a little bit to get back on the beat. I feel like that's the way to tell us something's going wrong. This is taking too long because they're killing the guy. Yeah, and I also think there's something else, too. We saw it in the Bank of Atlanta scene. He doesn't like to see violence. He looked through the window, and it looked like they were starting to use their guns, and he just diverts to the music. I think he didn't want to see them rough up this armed truck driver and when he pulls back and sees the guy is actually dead that's where all the fun ends right even though we've been laughing at this point it's gotten too serious and baby really does want this job to be the last one what is with bats like before he gets out he like gives a speech and he does it during the robbery at the end as well is like this is our money they took it from us is this like how he psychs himself up convincing himself that he's taking back what's rightfully his I just took it as him basically being the coach revving up the team before getting into the game, you know? He's going to give this motivational speech before they go in. It's just his ritual. He gives the same speech just about twice, and it's his thing. He's going to say he's not superstitious about jobs, and he had a buddy who once wouldn't do a job because knocking on heaven's door came on the radio, but he's got this little ritual he does, and it psychs him up the way baby's music gets him in the mood. Yeah, I think he is honestly the most interesting of all of the bank robbers. He's the one that I find the most threatening, the most complicated, just the most compelling. Yeah, I feel he's the most dangerous character. Forget it when Doc says, oh, it'd be a shame if something happens to Deborah." I'm more worried about bats. And this is something that I wonder throughout the rest of this movie. I question why Baby makes some choices he does, but I wonder how much Bats really has on Baby at any given moment. And at one point after this, you know, during the chase, and it's another great car chase. There's some Marine, he's listed in credits as the Marine, who goes after them. He's just a guy who's there who decides to pull out his guns and start shooting at the bank robbers. I don't know if you've seen Hell in High Water. I was going back to that because I guess they got to that kind of Texas justice thing first. But yeah, that this soldier is going to go, I guess, full Punisher and try to mow him down and stop this robbery. He ends up getting their truck 
stuck under a semi that's going sideways. And this is practical, right? Yeah, practical. And I even saw some clips with cameras on it and the sparks flying. I can't wait for the Blu-ray so I can see more of how the hell they did that stuff versus the few minutes they put online. But Bats is going to shoot this guy, and you could see why Bats would kill him. I mean, he may not have needed to shoot that security guard, but if it's a kill-or-be-killed situation, it almost feels justified that he's going to kill this hero that keeps coming after him, and Baby is going to spin away and save this guy's life. Yeah, what ultimately does the soldier in is he tries to do a Baby move. He tries to go down that hill onto the other freeway, and he just can't handle it. He rolls over, and he's out of the chase. He does live. We see him on TV later. He's got a bandaged head. He's being interviewed. Why did you try to get involved? I didn't catch that until my third viewing, but he did survive this. I think it's a big deal in this movie. Baby really only kills one person. He did not kill this guy by leading him to drive down an embankment. And the times he'll use a gun, he never makes a killing shot. He'll shoot shoulders, he'll shoot knees. In fact, he's trying to correct an accident that happened because people weren't paying attention to the road. And so that's his whole drive. You know, the baby driver is that baby that wants to take the wheel and save his mom. But it's because of that that Bats then asks him, did you make me miss that shot? And baby says no. And... What Bat says is, you a good driver, you a bad liar, though. So how much can Bat see through Baby? Bats is preternaturally, almost psychic. He's going to completely and correctly dissect Darling and Buddy. I think it's correct. We're never given 100% confirmation, but we're given about 90% confirmation that what Bats is going to intuit off of their life is right. And so how much dirt does he have on Baby that he could use against him? He might have dirt on him. I don't know how psychic he is. Again, these are pretty thin characters. I could tell Baby was lying. I could tell you what Buddy's deal is. Like, I, I don't think there's much to him, but the fact that Bats will call him all out, that he's not a team player. This whole thing goes wrong. JD, who puts the Asian in Home Invasion, he forgets a shotgun. He's going to get punished by Bats for that with his life. You know, you could see it coming, but it ends up not being so bad for Baby because this is the final job and he can walk away and, all right, it did go bad, but he has his life and as long as he gets rid of this car, he is completely out of it. And what I like how they tell you he's done with this is they do the coffee thing again, except it's such a downer. There's not the almost dancing and the music. It's almost that Charlie Brown uh, head looking straight down walk as he comes back with the coffee. Not just that, but his rhythm's off. You notice the first time he went, the whole city moved with him the first time he went. It was like he was in control of everything through his ears. This time people are bumping into him. His rhythm is off. He's disturbed. His shirt has changed. He's now wearing a gray shirt. His white shirt is gone. And JD, International Man of Mystery, is long gone, baby. He's going to have to go crush the car with JD's body in the trunk. We're going to get some Commodores playing easy. He's going to have the flashback here that's going to completely tell us what happened with his parents. We see his dad's drinking a lot of beer, I notice. So I do take it that the father was an alcoholic, possibly abusive, and they died in that car wreck. I want to give a shout out to something subtle. Baby has scars all over his face. That is a really good makeup job. It does not look like makeup. I noticed them right away at the beginning. I'm like, oh, okay, they're going to tell us how he got these scars. That has to do with his tinnitus, I bet. Yeah, he looks like Miles Teller. But yeah, <laughs> here's the thing. <laughs> I, 
I know that Edgar Wright has seen and probably adored Guardians of the Galaxy. Isn't this too close? This whole, we don't understand the significance of Easy in this moment, but we will by the end. That everything he's doing is trying to fix that mom. And the way that the soundtrack has become a voice and a commentary throughout the story. I just feel like he got beaten to the punch again by Marvel. And he should have changed some things. I was thinking about that when his quest later on is to get a single cassette the same way that Peter Quill had to get the Walkman. Yeah, exactly. They make the idea that his mom's voice is so important to him. I would have rather, just riffing here, I would have rather seen that he wanted to get away and be a DJ or musician or something. I wanted a different goal for him than this whole Freudian Oedipal thing. Instead of delivering pizzas? I mean, that's the obvious joke. Oh, you deliver it so fast. I think Spider-Man's done that a couple times, too. It seems a strange way of, of being benevolent. I wondered if there was something in the fact that he was working for Goodfellas Pizza, but now I think it's just a joke on Godfather's Pizza. But No, Goodfellas, criminals. He came from criminals. Yeah, I think that's the joke. And later on, Doc's going to say, why slave away delivering Goodfellas pizzas to just to afford a night out when you can make all that dough with a great fella? Me. But still, I mean, I know obviously the movie Goodfellas, I've seen it, but I was trying to figure out if I'm overanalyzing everything Wright does because that's what Wright has brought to the table in four previous films. Yeah, and they peppered in, you know, musical stars too. Atlanta is a hotbed for hip hop and Big Boy is in that scene at the nice restaurant. Killer Mike is there. Why not just work that in there? I feel like... It's frustrating to me that Baby doesn't have a, a goal in life, that he's just hung up to what happened to him in the past, and that there's nowhere that, now that he's going to wind up with this waitress at the end of all of it, the reason why I can't imagine a sequel is I can't imagine what he'd want to do. But they just wanted to hit the road. Which I is lame. you got to admit, that's just not a very strong character arc. I think it works perfectly well in a rebel without a cause kind of way. Yeah, it's the cool thing to do, but is that a compelling story? I don't know. It's not very realistic, but we're watching a musical. Musicals don't thrive on realism. They still have goals, like they're still trying to get the Von Trops away from the Nazis. That's pretty intense. No, or were they not being realistic? That's not my barometer. It's just not that deep. He's not very interesting then. I mean, I would rather see him stay in Rob Banks than go and do this. Now, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but there's something Wright did in this film that I'm trying to dissect a little bit more. When Deborah shows up, the film has these splashes of color. I first noticed it when they go to the laundromat. Every washer has a primary color in it and in order. Red, yellow, blue, red, yellow, blue, red, yellow, blue. And her dress is yellow. When she's not around, the colors are more muted. Baby does dress in black, white, shades of gray. I was trying to figure out exactly what this was trying to mean or bring, but I couldn't get it. I think it's just different sets on a musical. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like he did this before in Scott Pilgrim with the hair color and what have you. A lot of this feels just like flourishes that he does. I suppose I never thought about it. Those could have all been her clothes. She could have had that many clothes and all her clothes just fit in the primary color scheme and that's what she wears, except when she's a waitress and has to dress like a Debra. But I just tried to notice the color schemes because at the end of the film, we'll talk about it, color goes away from this film and it's obviously an intentional artistic choice. I watched it the third time specifically looking for color palette changes and all I could find is when Deborah shows up things become vivid and I think that's maybe saying it's it, what excites Baby. I feel like ultimately Baby would keep stealing if yes if Bats hadn't killed that 
armored truck driver and JD, and if Joseph didn't disapprove so much. Ultimately, he's trying to get away from the life because he knows that it's not what his parental figure wants for him and not necessarily because it's not what he wants but when doc comes back and says you will do this next job it's just not a big enough conflict yeah i mean it goes back on that standard be ashamed if something happened to your girl yeah i wish i got more from doc out of this he's obviously had baby beholden for a long time because baby owed him money I'm kind of thinking back, this exact same plot was in the movie The Cooler. You guys remember that one? It's in our book where Bernie in that film owed a debt to Alec Baldwin. And then when it was over, Alec had to try to keep him there to keep cooling the business. And we've got this here. If Doc is going to be a father figure later on, he shouldn't force Baby into it with... You know, it's the carrot and the stick argument. He shouldn't have to use the stick. There should be a big enough carrot to make Baby make a bad choice. If Baby's going to suffer for his sins and he's going to have permanent damage out of what's going to happen, he needed to make a bad choice in the movie, not when he was 11 and boosting cars. Yeah, the problem is he's very passive. And for a driver, you want an active character. But I like that because every time Doc has said, you in, he replies... Am I in? You know, he's intentionally passive. It's not poor writing if you're writing a character who is just happy to take instruction. I have screenwriting teachers that would disagree with you. Well, we're going to see that Baby, I think for the first time, has to go and case a joint for a heist. And he has to take Doc's eight-year-old Sam, who's a better criminal than Baby is. But even if that was a conflict, like, oh, here is an actual Baby, this eight-year-old, and I don't want him to fall into this life of crime, something to motivate him. But no, he's just going to go along with it. It's played for a joke. It's a funny scene seeing Sam give all the signals. Okay, there's 11 cameras and this and that. But yeah, give Baby a motivation to either stay in the life or really want to get out or want to change somehow. Well, he gets that from the teller, I suppose. Because yeah, I guess. The teller's going to quote Dolly Parton. And this is a line that is, I suppose, important. Quote Dolly Parton, everyone wants happiness, nobody wants pain, but you can't have a rainbow without any rain. At the end of this movie, there's going to literally be a rainbow with Baby. So I think it's the teller, not Sam, who's going to speak these random words of wisdom. But we've also seen him be good earlier on when they hijack a car during that bank heist. There's a baby in the backseat of the car, and he stops to take that baby out and give it to the mother. So, I mean, he is a good guy. He makes these connections with people. Again, I think he's seeing his own mother in these scenarios. Women being in danger is a real trigger for him. That is the thing that's weighing very heavily on this post office job, particularly when he gets back and finds that, indeed, why would Doc bring bats back? That's stupid. You got through that job, great, but some blood on your hands. If you always mix up who does the heist, you wouldn't bring bats back. I agree. I understand bringing back Darling and Buddy. I mean, they said at the beginning, we'll darken your doorway again when our nose bag is empty. <laughs> I mean, they're cokeheads. Yeah, they do these robberies to feed their cocaine habit. But as for why Bats is back, that seemed like a poor choice. But this one, the whole thing about this final job seems... This is a convoluted plot they got to pull off. It's Reservoir Dogs level bad. And there's so many times where Doc realizes it and is like, let's call this whole thing off. Because Baby has to case the joint. This seems unusual. 
for some reason, Doc's like, I can't go in there. You can't go to a post office. You can't pretend to mail a package. You have to send your nephew and baby in. Okay, that's weird, but okay. And then you have to go get new guns. I did not understand that part. This does not seem like the kind of thing that baby would be doing or would even be the crew that's going to do the robbery. And then after you get the guns, you all have to sleep here. Nobody can leave. I don't get this. They're going to steal money orders and then they have a fence to sell them to that can make fake money orders. This seems like a lot of work. Okay, I'm glad we're all on the same page. I don't like the rest of this movie. I, I don't dislike it. It's not like I'm angry this is a bad movie, but I just don't feel like much about what happens feels anything more than perfunctory. These don't feel like the wrap-up that we were building towards. I think this is just supposed to be the final conflict, one last job, and every bit of it just feels like something is off. And yeah. Bats is, of course, the fly in the ointment that's going to make everything really go to shit. But all of this just seems unusual. Maybe it's because we've only seen two jobs. But when the third job differs so drastically from the first two, something's up. I already feel like the main conflict of this third act should be Deborah's in danger. It's a thin one. We've seen it a million times in a million other movies. But because I like Baby and because I like Deborah, I'm into that being the focus. Now that we're going to go and we're going to have to get guns for some reason, and then those are going to be undercover cops selling the guns, so there's going to be a shootout, and then that's going to lead them to the diner that Deborah's working at. Why are you getting this complicated? Why are you zigging and zagging all over the place? This should be a straight line. There is dialogue that gives reason to it. Good reason? Maybe because Bats killed a guy in the last heist, but Doc says we need new weapons that aren't tied to us or to our previous jobs. So they specifically want new weapons. They are getting them from cops. Doc perhaps should have said, hey, these people you're going to meet are undercover cops, but there's one there who the credits list as ARMY, A-R-M-I-E, not Arnie, but ARMY had arrested Bats in the past. And so Bats knew they were cops, seized the Atlanta Police Department stamp on one of the boxes. But if Doc had said you're meeting cops, then Bats wouldn't have thought they were in a sting. Yeah, we don't need this at all, because really all it exists to do is to show that Bats is hyper-violent and jumps to conclusions. And we already had that in the previous scene, because they stop at the convenience store and he kills the clerk for gum. And we get that again later, because they stop in the diner and he's going to kill Deborah. Does he kill the clerk? Yeah. Oh, I thought he just stole the gum. Come on. We see Baby look in and the guy's not there. Yeah, he was never there even when they drove up. We do see... Bats at the window, which does have glass, though. It has that security glass that gas stations have. So I don't know how Bats would have gotten a gun through there. I just thought he stole the gun. I take it to mean, time and time again, rather than doing the honorable or legal thing, he's going to do the erratic, violent thing. And so he, everything is a heist to him. Every opportunity where you have to pay, he is going to steal. What's interesting to me during these scenes, though is as Bats is getting crazier, we have Baby bonding with Buddy. Buddy is going to be the one defending him. They're going to bond over listening to Queen. And Buddy and Darling, they did come up with a plan to kill Bats while Bats was stealing that gum. Yeah, they do that in front of Baby. And we saw Baby shared his earbuds with Deborah. And I thought that was a really cool shot because they each used the ear so that the earbuds and their heads formed a heart. When he's sharing it with Buddy, Buddy's using the inner ear, so it's kind of keeping them apart, like they're separated by the earbuds in the shot. But 
those two are really becoming friends. So truthfully, I think this last hour is full of twists and turns I did not foresee. Yeah, I, I think what they're trying to set up with Darling and Buddy is that for much of the movie, we think of them as the good guys. Yeah, maybe they have a cocaine problem. Maybe they rough up people at the bank. But by and large, they seem to respect Baby, where Bats is always going to challenge him. Griff challenged him. They get our main character, so we want them to be good characters. We're starting to see that crumble. We're starting to see, yeah, the fact that they would kill Bats, well, that's kind of bad. But Bats is bad, so maybe that's okay. But ultimately, Buddy is going to become the abusive father figure. It's They're going to restage the mother's death scene, except this time Baby's in the front seat and Mommy and Daddy, which they even refer to themselves as that, are in the back seat. We'll get to the car crash a bit. They've still got to go to the diner after this. They don't got to go to the diner. Bats wants to go there. And this is a moment of real tension that I felt in the film. Bats is like, I'm hungry, and we see what diner it is. And of course, Baby's worried about going there. Is this a coincidence or no. does Bat know? He knows. He knows everything about all of them. And that's what comes out to me very clearly is that he knows that these are code names, but he gets the real dirt. And we don't have a scene that ever verifies that, but just the way that it's played and just because this is the kind of character we're dealing with, that he's one step ahead of everyone else, and he knows that he's been probably following Baby, would be my guess, and watching what he's doing, and he's seen him in this diner. That would be my guess, too. And that's where I say he comes off as almost psychic. When he says the educated guest from the uneducated man and talks about how Buddy was a stockbroker who got into too much debt, left his wife, took his favorite lap dancer and went on the run and got this new life. If he knows all that about them and from John Hamm's reaction, you get to quote Star Wars, you must have hit it pretty close to the mark to get her all riled up like that, then... I think he knows about Baby and Deborah. I think he's trying to prove it because he says to Baby, Baby, you know this bitch? And then he does take his gun like he's going to go shoot Deborah instead of pay for four cocas and Baby's going to grab the gun. I mean, if he killed someone for gum, why not? Yeah, that's exactly it. But again, it's baiting. I just want to expose that you care about her because you're trying to be cool, but I want to let you know that I know. And again, that's why I respect this character so much. He's so much more interesting because he's smart and he's ahead of the game. But the problem is later on when it comes out that he has a Deborah tape, Jamie Foxx plays it as shocked. So it's inconsistent. I'm not sure that he does. The others do. But I, when I looked at his face, it was more like, ah, it's confirmed. Nah, but his line is, you told me you didn't know that bitch. And he doesn't deliver it as in, well, you told me. You know, he doesn't deliver it as in, I knew. It's just, I really am looking for what babies and Bat's motivation is throughout these scenes. And that's why I've overanalyzed what they're doing here. But... I do think that maybe Bats knows and maybe Baby knows Bats knows because there's no other reason for Baby to continue the job. They get out of the diner. I think Deborah is really intuitive because she didn't break his cover in any way. She didn't act like she knew him. I think if your boyfriend came in, you'd have to be really on the ball to not screw that up. But they go back to Doc. Doc knows shit went wrong because nobody called him and said bananas, which is the code word after a job goes well. 
And Doc's like, we're going to call the whole thing off. Yeah, the only reason Baby convinces him to keep it going is he doesn't want Bats to go back to the diner. That will be the plan if this is called off. You think? Oh, yeah. I think that's why Baby keeps it going because he's got a plan to get out of there at 2 a.m. and go on that road trip with Deborah with no goal, no money, and just music. And yeah, he wants Bats to stay out of it. I agree, but what gives you the impression that Bats wouldn't? That's the only thing I can think of upon multiple viewings as to why Baby says we're going to keep doing this job is because of fear of Bats. But I don't see anything in this movie that gives me solid reason why he would think that if the job was called off, Bats would come after him. Have you seen Bats in this whole film? Yeah, and and Bats has made very clear. I mean, they've had several scenes where Baby has got in the way of his shot you know even when they killed the butcher for those guns one guy tried to get away and he did it again i feel like they repeat things many times to the point that bats is just like i'm tired of this baby getting in the way of my bloodlust i do like they set up one other thing in that diner scene because when bats calls out buddy it's darling who says Believe me when I tell you, you don't want to see my buddy mad. You haven't seen how relentless he is, because when he sees red, you won't see nothing but black. We're going to see that she was not bullshitting. Bats is going to clap and call it an Oscar speech, but that is actually Buddy's character. We're going to see that when things finally do go wrong, and we're first hinted at it. Baby does try to sneak out at 2 a.m., and it's Buddy who gets in his way. You expect it to be Bats. Bats opened his eyes, but it's Buddy who's standing there trying to be like, what, I have to fucking worry about you now, too? And what tells me, though, that I'm still, like, into these characters, Buddy's about to let him go on his 2 a.m. coffee run. Okay, whatever. But when Bats opens that door, you gotta lock those damn doors. He opens that door to the truck and gets in and sits down. I'm like, oh, this is bad. Like, I find myself still emotionally invested in, like, feeling the tension and the danger. Yeah, I agree. I like all of these kinds of moments. The power plays is what we're talking about. Who's got the one-up on who and how is Baby going to get out of this is really good. Until we get to the actual heist. And then I just feel like... I actually felt like... Do you know the occurrence on Owl Creek Bridge? There's yeah. actually a moment where I thought that we entered a dream state. And that much of what we were watching wasn't true because it got so fantastical. Once he starts <laughs> having these images of Deborah waiting for him in black and white in like 50s attire. I'm like, something here is telling me that we are going to enter the realm of subjective and leave objective reality. Yeah, but I don't know that we ever do. There's some strange imagery, like the diner has a giant Route 66 mural on the wall. You wouldn't necessarily have that in Atlanta. I wonder if it's a holdover from the previous script when it took place someplace else. Route 66 goes from Chicago to Los Angeles. It does not go through Atlanta. So to have a Route 66 diner there is strange. To have this 50s attire and this old car, which is get your kicks on Route 66-ish, is strange. I don't know. The 50s, muscle cars, I get it. Yeah, I mean, it romanticized. Route 66 is the most famous highway ever. But yeah, Bats calls out Baby and ruins the plan. He tells Doc about his tapes. Like, he finds out that he was recording them, and Baby has to give this ridiculous explanation. Sounds ridiculous that, he oh, he just uses these for remixes, and they're like, that's the dumbest thing we've ever heard, so he has to prove it, and... That's the end of the tapes? Like, I thought those tapes were going to mean more. I thought maybe this was a sly way of framing Doc if he ever had to go to the police or something. But no, it really is just an extracurricular activity that he likes to do remixes. And I got that he just didn't want to take 
Bats to his apartment because of Joe. And he's like, I live far away. Bats, you're right, Stuart. Maybe he has been following him because he's like, no, you don't. He knows where baby lives. We know Doc found out earlier. Doc visited the place during some of the threatening scenes. But Bats is the one who's going to go to the place, rough it up, steal Joe's wheelchair and come back with the tapes. And I don't understand everything about camera tricks, but they do such a great job of always keeping that mom one in focus. Whenever they dump all the tapes out, there's always the mom one. It's yellow and all the others are white, which helps, but it's always center frame, sharp focus. The others are a little softer. You always see that mom tape he wants. I can't tell. Is Kevin Spacey embarrassed when he hears? Was he slow? I just think they didn't realize that he really was using these for electronic remixes. But this is yet another chance for Baby to get out of this heist. Although I do think this time Bats is going to kill him. Because Doc is like, somebody give this guy a ride home, I'll get another driver. Bats is like, I'm free, I'll take him home. Bats, buddy asked, do all of your stories end with someone dying? I think the answer is yes. So I could understand why Baby would give this impassioned speech as to why he's your driver this time. I don't know why he didn't back out the first time. Is he worried that they have Joe hostage somewhere? Well, they got he's got to be worried. They got those tapes from his place. Right. I mean, and they have the wheelchair as well. Yeah. I also think that he's just concerned about that teller as well, that later when he's in position behind the post office and she's coming into work, you know, again, he doesn't want to leave a woman in a situation of violence. He could easily drive away at that point. Everyone is inside. I'm out scot-free. I have not committed a crime. I thought he might, but no, he pulls bats around the back to go get those muddy orders that they're going to somehow fake. Well, no, they have a guy who has a printer. They're going to turn them into their real money orders and they're going to turn. Yeah, I, I get that. I feel like those are probably tracked, though, and they're serial numbers. <laughs> yeah, I would think that as well. It doesn't seem like the greatest of plans. But yeah, it's the clerk who's going to... Baby's going to shake his head to turn her away. She gets that clue really quick, and she finds the world's fastest security guard. Like, out of nowhere, instantly she returns with a security guard that Bats has to kill. It could have been on the bank one. He was just on lunch. We did see the bank had one security guard. Yeah, I thought the job was like at 8.30 or 10 in the morning or something. They were predicting rain for the afternoon. It's starting to rain. I thought that rain was going to play a bigger deal. Again, a lot of things I thought were going to be a bigger deal in this movie end up not being. I do love their little safety glasses that mess with the closed circuit television. Yeah, that's a real thing that supposedly fools infrared cameras. How does it work? It just picks up those lights. So when you see the person on monitor, it's just a bunch of lights. It just blurs out their face with light. Okay. Yeah, we saw a shot of it on Doc's board, but I didn't know it was a real thing. I just thought it was setting them up. Yeah, they get in the car. Baby won't drive because of that security guard. And then Baby takes a life. He's going to ram bats into a truck recreating like you said Stuart that car accident of his youth impaling him I love the quick shot where he's turning off the passenger side airbag before he does it yeah in some ways I think he's saving the good people he's like see I did the work for you you don't have to kill bats and I've protected mommy and daddy but did he really think it would go well knowing that yeah all the cops would descend and that these people would have no choice but to shoot their way out yeah when you have a song as weird as Hocus Pocus start playing 
thing. Like his driving seems off. He just can't get away. It turns into a foot chase. Yeah. And what I like, again, what I've liked about the car chases is that they felt authentic. And here, there's no like crazy parkour, wire foo. It doesn't feel like Ansel Elgort did anything that he couldn't do, that he'd need a stuntman to do. It feels like stuff that a young person, I, I probably couldn't do this now, but <laughs> yes. a young person that was in shape could do. Agreed. And this entire three-minute sequence is what Wright paid out of his own pocket for. The studio did not want to pay for a foot chase. Wright said he thought it was important to keep things mixed up. I agree. I don't know that we can outdo the first two car chases we've had. So making it a foot chase, it makes it different. I like how he tries to change clothes in a store. I mean, you keep thinking he's going to get away. He uses the same tricks on foot that he used in a car. He's all terrain. He goes upstairs. He goes over ledges the same as he would in a car. He tries the change outfits the way that they change cars and nothing is working. Nothing is getting him out of there. But he's going to literally run into Buddy and Darling who have the absolute worst strategy in gunfights ever. They just stand there in the open and shoot. And while I love the little moves like where Buddy cocked Darling's gun when they were shooting the gun dealers, Darling got tagged during that. We never see any blood, but she got hit in the shoulder and I'm like, you guys are just standing there. They will shoot you. Get cover. I like the moment where they're in the parking lot. Baby finally gets a car and he ends up like backing into rear-ending Buddy and Darling. And that lets the police surround him. I I'm sorry, Darling. You got some badass guns, but you can't stand out in the open like that. Those cops are going to get a shot off. And she thinks that they're going to get in Baby's blue car and run off. She tosses in the money orders. So that does give Baby the leverage now. He has the money orders. Darling gets gunned down. And now Buddy is pissed. He's going to take as many shots at Baby, blaming Baby for all of this as he's taking at the cops. Baby has to run and steal a, what, purple Cadillac? Yeah, he carjacks it from an old woman, but he's nice enough to give the purse back. I love it. He's going through the radio, and I'm waiting for Chekhov's knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Like, you set that up with bats like there are bad songs that are hexes. I was fully expecting something like that to happen. But no, he gets a song that he could groove to and gets out of there. Possibly the most popular song on the soundtrack, the one I knew best on the soundtrack, the one most likely to be found on the radio at any given time, but he will not drive until he finds a driving song, which even the old lady he's carjacking has to look out and be like, what the fuck? And he's going to take care of priorities before going to Deborah, which is where Buddy's headed. He's going to take care of Joe, and he's on the run. The cops are pulling out all the stops at this point. He doesn't know Buddy's alive, though, right? Buddy, we think, I thought he was dead. I thought he got gunned down by the cops. He should have been dead. This doesn't make any sense. Yes. The, no, my problem here is Buddy just goes on forever at the end of this film. Yeah, there's too many steps here. And again, there's been no sacrifice. You're telling me that they went back, got the tapes, and left this guy without his wheelchair alive to blab what he saw to report, call the cops? Maybe they wore Mike Myers masks. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> he should have at least been tied up in the hideout or something. Yeah. yeah, this is not good. I don't know why Bats wouldn't kill Joe. Bats is murderous. Bats kills everyone. And then go pick up Deborah. Don't, like, wait all night. Like, suddenly it goes from day to night, and he's taking him to some living facility way far out. No, go get Deborah. 
But the cops are right behind him. The police show up at that old person's home that he's recorded a tape for. He's given Joe all his money so he could stay there. But the cops are on him the whole time. I do like the music choice here. This is a song I know really well. It's off R.E.M.'s Automatic for the People, New Orleans Instrumental Number 1. I listened to the hell out of that album in the 90s, and it's what plays. It's not actually on the soundtrack, but it's what plays when he's recording the tape for Joseph that he likes frozen peas and meatloaf and peanut butter spread to the edges. Spread that peanut butter to the edges, yep. I like Joe, though. I think he's kind of got that cantankerous old man vibe that's kind of funny, so I'm glad he's taken care of. I'm glad he's left with all the money, even though he didn't want it. But yeah, now we're going to get to, I guess, the climax climax. A whole lot of stuff with Buddy, and like it starts at the diner when he goes to get Deborah. Never Gonna Give You Up by Barry White. We're going to have Buddy saying... I ain't gonna quit. Quitting just ain't my shtick. And he is not kidding. He will not quit. He is going to become the Terminator coming after Baby as if Arnold Schwarzenegger after Sarah Connor. I'm sorry. He should have died at the diner. The fact that then we're gonna go deal with Doc and then Buddy is gonna show up again and he's gonna kill Doc. Uh, it's too much. It's This is an almost two-hour film. I feel like a lot of this could have been cut off at the end. There's no payoff for it. If I had really believed, if they had spent more time with this baby hanging out with Buddy, and he really saw him like a father figure, and my how it turned when Mom died and it turned on him, they had worked his backstory in a way that it played out in significance and present, this would be the ending. But honestly, John Hamm just doesn't seem as threatening as Jamie Foxx. So we have a very labored climax. And this is where I started to think, oh, this is just a fantasy. When they escape this diner and there's twins in a red car that just kind of let them escape, I'm like, this can't be really happening. He got shot in that diner that we would find out that Buddy actually killed him or something. Yeah, and the fact that Doc... When did that happen? What is the reason for his change of heart? He's a romantic. He knew about her beforehand, but now it's cool. There's one dropped line that he says, I was in love once, and that's all we have to go on. That is not enough. This is my biggest problem with the movie. He goes to Doc, and Doc's like, I can't help you. I'm not even going to let you have your one tape, even for all those money orders you stole. Millions of dollars of money orders. Of course, Doc doesn't have a fence for them anymore because Buddy's not going to help out, and Bats killed the first fence in the shootout with the guns because... The fence was also the gun dealer? I don't know, but Doc's not helping and then Doc's change of heart are two things I don't get. If Doc helped right from the beginning because he did feel a fatherly thing for baby, it would be fine by me. I'd be like, okay, I get it. If he said, here's the money, never come back, take your tape. If you come back, I'll kill you, but I'm going to let you run because you're like a son to me, I'd go with it. If he just said, no, I'm not helping you, you fucked up my criminal empire and you're lucky I'm not shooting you I'd go with it but the fact that he changes his mind when Deborah walks into the room is just a turn too far it's the moment when he's like run and he pulls out the guns and he's shooting at but I'm like okay no not going there and then why throw in the fact that the butcher's henchmen are still alive and come up to say bananas this isn't the ending for this movie It's right doing kind of what he did with Hot Fuzz. You know, he wants it all to come together at the end where the goose, the cult, and everything become very important. Here, I think he thought it was impactful to have 
enemy after enemy after enemy, but the gangsters don't do anything. They shoot Doc twice, once in each shoulder. He seems completely unhurt. Bullets don't hurt people in this universe. And then he's killed by Buddy. Even the fact that Buddy is like, I'm going to take away what you love most, and then shoots two bullets by Baby's ears, so he'll go deafer, I guess? No, no. That made me gasp. That made me sad. When he said, you took away something I love, I'm going to take away something you love. It seemed like too smart a move for Buddy for me. Buddy is smart, though, and I thought that was going to be the whole retribution. And listen... Baby has never been shown as hard of hearing. He has tinnitus. He hears a ringing. You know, I hear fine. I hear a ringing, so certain pitches are going to be hard for me. But my hearing is still very acute. And so I don't know that he has hearing loss, but his love of music, his love of audio, to take that away, to me, hurt more than shooting Deborah in the face. That was horrible horrible and i felt so bad for baby in that moment i was that was gut-wrenching to me but he's not deaf at the end of this right i don't know yeah he's still suffering hearing loss when he wakes up and finds that deborah's taking the wheel and taking him away but yeah it like many things about this ending it's kind of inconclusive and has it halfway between one and another direction i it would have been nice to know conclusively but i feel like there's some sense that they don't want to go too dark that was my guess here was that they had ideas for really doing some crazy tarantino kind of didn't see that coming twists and maybe people die that you didn't want to like joe and then they just said no it's going to be a completely happy ending and everyone bad gets punished and everything good just works out in the end it reminds me of true romance you know we've got Clarence in Alabama, and at the end, you know, Clarence was going to die and Alabama was going to kill herself. In the final cut, Clarence lost an eye. He didn't lose complete sight, but he lost an eye. Here, we have Baby losing hearing, and we do see a doctor looking in his ears. When he's sentenced, we do get the impression he's hearing the judge. He's reacting. There's no hearing aids, and I would think if he was deaf... But he could hear, still hear some. He could understand the words Deborah said to him. I'd think hearing aids would be the next thing. In fact, hearing aids are a solution for some tinnitus. I'm surprised he didn't try them to begin with. We never see him get state-funded hearing aids. No good health care. Well, he has great health care in prison. People in prison get better health care than people in the private sector sometimes. So I'm surprised he didn't get some Georgia-funded hearing aids. But... That's after they finally do kill Buddy. Buddy, they push the car off. I think that's when they should have killed Buddy. Yeah, no, he's still alive because he is Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator. There's no way Edgar Wright could make me happy with this choice because he shows a cut of Buddy opening the door. And of course, I'm like, well, Buddy made it out. Yep. But if you didn't show me the cut of Buddy opening the door, then I'd say it's a cheat that Buddy was still alive. So the best way to win this, Edgar, if you're listening and you want to make me happy, is to actually have, you know, it's a movie called Baby Driver. How about have the final kill actually happen with a car instead of making Baby pick up a gun? But I think that there might have been someone that said at some point, maybe the actress herself, say, why do I have to always be rescued? Why can't I do something? They wanted to give Deborah a moment where she fought back with a crowbar. To have her just be a damsel in distress is really lame. Maybe, but to have him come back like Jason one last time is also lame. Yeah, but everyone comes back here. Talk about trying to make this all about happy endings. You get to this trial, you know. So Deborah and Baby are driving off. 
Deborah's driving, and you think, oh, okay, they're on their road trip. They finally got away. But no, there is a roadblock. They're going to get caught. Deborah wants to go for it, but it's Baby who puts his foot on the brake and pulls the keys out. I thought for sure that they were going to die there. I mean, this is the exact ending, spoiler alert, of a movie we reviewed, The Devil's Rejects. They play Free Bird and drive right into the cops who shoot them to death. Well, I mean, just to put it in context, Bonnie and Clyde is how that movie ends. Well, admittedly, uh, I haven't seen that film, and Rob Zombie, like Tarantino, picks and chooses what he wants to remix. But I thought for sure that that was going to be the end, because you don't want to see Baby go to jail. Why would you do that? Yeah, but because he's such a nice guy. Like, I was shocked that he wasn't telling Deborah. okay, say that I forced you to do this, because I don't know how she gets off of aiding and embedding <laughs> charge here. Again, I was thought when I was watching this movie, we would get back to that Bo's diner and see him bleed out, because this couldn't be reality. Too much happens that just feels magically solving the problems the post office clerk the old woman he took the car from i mean they're all witnesses about what a great guy he is on the stand like they all come back to try to give him a happy ending i don't have a problem with that because he did save that clerk and he did very nicely carjack that lady and he's a young kid who if you heard the circumstances and Joe is there to tell them, he wanted to get out. And when he got out, they made it so much worse for him. I think that that would make him sympathetic to people he was kind to. He didn't have to give that woman her baby. He didn't have to give that woman her purse. He didn't have to warn that woman away. That they would all be witnesses, character witnesses for the defense makes sense. Yeah, I'll, I'll side with that. I think that that's okay, but... They don't want us to have conflicted feelings about Baby. He is a good guy. I would find this better if there was some conflict about what he had done. I guess he's not able to see Deborah for five years. He gets no parole for five years, but presumably because of these good character witnesses, the second he's up for parole, he would be able to get out, and we see that happy ending. This is where all the white is. I noticed everything in that prison is white. He's washing white cars. He's working in the kitchen serving white cake and white bread. Everything is white there. There is no color for him until he gets postcards from Deborah. But you talked about you wanted this whole ending to be a dream sequence. I didn't say want. You thought. It would have been better. <laughs> I don't even say that. I just thought that everything I was seeing was so unsatisfying. Please make it not be true. But I don't understand this very end because he's in prison. He gets this postcard stack from Deborah. And they're Route 66 postcards. So I'm like, is she on Route 66? Did She said she had no reason to stay. Did she hit the road because he's in prison and she's sending postcards from the road? And then we cut to this black and white scene. We saw that scene earlier, the fantasy of him and her and that car they couldn't afford and her in that 50s dress. We have that here and it starts in black and white, but then it becomes color and we see he's not standing in front of trees that he was earlier. He's standing in front of the prison with the razor wire. There is a rainbow in the distance. So is this five years later and he's paroled or is he still yes. in jail having a fantasy? If there is a reading in which this is all a dream, I don't know that it starts at this moment. I feel like probably much of the third act feels contrived in a way that could only be in the movies. And I don't know how to take that. I don't know why she's waiting. I mean, I have to say, I feel like that's a little lame, too, that she's just going to... Notice she was always there. Every time he went in the diner, she's just waiting. She has no other purpose but to be waiting for him when he's able to get to her. It's kind of a lame character. 
Yeah, just I think by the end, the rainbow thing is making me believe this is actually reality, and she waited five years for him, and it was... I mean, that's how I took it. I don't see another way to really take it. Yeah, it's reality, but the rainbow makes you think it's reality? That would, to me, say... That's fantastical. That's a musical ending. Well, and this is a musical. Yeah, if they end in song and dance, if, or full, like La La Land or the High School Musical, this would be the big dance scene with jailbreaks and what have you. And I think maybe La La Land, because it had, spoiler alert, a fake-out happy ending before the actual ending, maybe I was expecting something similar here, that this was a fake-out ending or something, but it just it seemed like too happy an ending. You know, the guy who did the score for this movie also did the score for Gravity, and I wondered about that movie's ending, too. How much, you know, at what point is it all a dream? But this one, if it isn't a dream, it's not told very clearly. They gloss over five years of prison very quickly with a montage of all white. Well, Stuart Jacob, it's time to make a big boy decision. Do you recommend this thing or not? Jacob. Yeah, I... I like this movie. I was excited for it. I mean, it's Edgar Wright. I, I like all of his movies. Like, when I go to rank them, because if you're going to rank something, something's got to be first, something's got to be last. But, like, they are so tightly packed in there because he consistently puts out a great product. This one's more frustrating. I feel like he goes off formula, and he has a very complicated, dense formula to his films. Here, I feel he maybe went for something even simpler, even though he's trying to do a crazy car chase musical thing, which sounds very complicated. He makes the car chasing and the music stuff look very easy. It's just too bad there's a lot of things missing that he especially has done well, maybe because he had Simon Pegg writing with him and a lot of those other ones. Maybe Simon Pegg brought that stuff. I don't know, but I miss the character characterization here this felt to me like a generic heist type film and that's too bad it had a lot of style it just didn't have the substance that a movie again like thief you, you go and see that they give some depth to james Conn's character there even though it plays again a lot of those tropes that you see in one more job type crime films what sums up this film is a cassette tape. Some of you will remember what those are. I found like a lot of times that A side on a cassette tape was really good. You, you get five, six really strong songs. And then that B side, they're just not as strong. Maybe the last one will be a good closer. That's how I feel about this film is like the first half is a really strong movie. And the second half, even though I'm I'm invested in the tension and the danger for Deborah and for Baby. It's just not as strong as film. And, and the fact that Buddy becomes the Terminator at the end and just will not die became very annoying. The ending they chose here, I don't know it would be a more satisfying ending. I just didn't find a five-year montage in jail to be that great. So it kind of just ends weak. So it's a good movie. It's probably the favorite movie I've seen this year in theaters for now playing. I expected it to be great because of the pedigree behind it and just wasn't so it's still a very solid recommend though Stuart. Yeah, it's funny how that works. Sometimes you're like, it's a good movie, and, and it, yet it doesn't sound like that when you work through it. And that's because good movies are frustrating when great people make them. They're like, well, why aren't they great? You make great movies. You don't make good movies. I like this movie. I think it's a good movie. I think it's solid, and I think you're going to enjoy it. But when you only like a movie and you don't love a movie, I spend a lot of time thinking about what would have made it better. And I do think a lot of the rest of my thoughts on this movie are like they just kind of hold back on things. Edgar Wright I think is at his best when he's working with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. That Blood and Ice Cream trilogy I think is 
perfect. I like all three entries pretty much the same. I think he does struggle writing for younger characters. I wasn't as big on Scott Pilgrim as you guys are. I think this is his weakest film, largely because he doesn't understand or doesn't care to over-dramatize these backstory characters. But I like this movie. I enjoy the use of Atlanta. I like all the performances. The soundtrack is on point. I just think that he could have used an extra draft or two of, of writing this script, particularly the ending. All the elements are in place, but it just kind of runs out of ideas and runs out of gas. And so it should be a stronger recommend than it is, but it's a solid recommend. And I guess I like this movie more than either of you. I'll agree that the last hour isn't as good as the first hour. That first hour is perhaps the best stuff Edgar Wright has done, period. I love all of his movies, but that first hour is something magical with its two car chases and its coffee run and its humor with the Mike Myers masks. It's just honestly an hour of a perfect movie. And then once he gets out of the life, it's like the music takes a back seat. No car pun intended. The music is no longer the focus. You no longer have the lip syncing. You no longer have the synchronization. I have no doubt from everything I've read that those scenes at the end, the foot chase and the car chase and when baby's driving backwards and everything was every bit as choreographed as the coffee run in the beginning but it didn't have the same feel because it was trying to put more weight on suspense and less on the music. I think that's a mistake. I don't think this film has the suspense. There's some logical plot and character motivation questions that plague me in the second hour where I think Baby's car, it doesn't run out of gas, but it's like an electric car that's now down to just whatever the battery can do. But I was nervous coming in. I really... I had low expectations because everybody said it was a great film. And whenever everybody, you know, the capital E, everybody is praising a film and lauding it so much, I usually get in there and I'm let down. So I was worried that this might be the first Edgar Wright film I didn't like. I'm so happy to say it's now my second best film of his. It's my second favorite. I've seen it three times. I'll see it again. Edgar Wright said see it as large and as loud as possible. And Jacob, the moment you told me that it's on large format screen somewhere... I will drive to St. Louis to see this on a large format screen. It has a rewatchability because of its soundtrack that I think a lot of movies lack. It's like listening to an album multiple times. Some people look at you strange if you watch a movie multiple times in a short time, but nobody looks at you strange if you buy a new CD and listen to it a few times. And I think that's what this has. Its soundtrack is amazing. I can't give a strong enough recommend to that soundtrack. It introduced me to songs. It re-familiarized me with songs. It's 30 songs for 20 bucks. It's a great, great soundtrack. And to see it used in this movie, it may make the movie just a really big music video, but it's a music video I greatly like. Baby, you can drive my car. This is a strong recommend. And to be clear, your favorite one is... Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Okay, so we're at odds. You think he's at his best when he's dealing with young love. Yes. Yeah, I, I would still go with Shaun of the Dead and World's End before Scott Pilgrim or this. Oh, by far. Yeah, not even... I mean, again, I, I don't I don't want to attack a movie I like, but there's just... The, the thing I said was they're all so closely ranked. We're talking like fractions of points here. To me, this is not even close. I think that this is a B movie where normally Edgar Wright delivers an A paper. And so I don't think I'd ever watch this movie again. Oh, wow. And I think this is a really strong film. It is truly 
the best film I've seen in theaters this year. And the closest number two is Belko Experiment. And that's <laughs> such a far drop from this. I, I think Wonder Woman's better than this. And Dunkirk is coming out in a couple weeks. I have high estimations. Get out. There have been movies I've liked better than this by far. I do think there's a lot of hype around this movie because it's an original concept. And that should always be applauded. I'm so excited to see major studios release movies that aren't franchises, that aren't based on other properties. Please keep doing that. And yeah, I let's give original screenplays their due. What the hell are you talking about? Don't you know you're on now playing? What do we do? We don't do original concepts. We do series. <laughs> yes, it mean we get a week off instead of having to go to the movies every weekend this summer. But that is it for this review, but not a, for theaters. You know, I, this is my favorite film of the year, but if early buzz is to be believed, it's only going to stay that way for one week. The buzz around Spider-Man has it as perhaps the best comic book movie of all time? Yeah, I, you know, Spider-Man, I'll have to get in the frame. I don't think he's ever made a movie I've loved. Yeah, a third attempt at this franchise? Ugh. I'll go this far. I'm hoping to see the best Spider-Man movie ever made. I like Tom Holland in Civil War as Spider-Man. Yeah, it's a good actor. Michael Keaton's kind of on a roll. I've enjoyed him, and yeah, let's see what happens. He played Birdman. Now he's playing a Birdman as the Vulture. Yep. I don't know. I'm not saying it's the best, but I'm hearing some good things from people who got early screenings. So we'll be reviewing that next week. And then we'll be going back to theaters and not too awful long. War for the Planet of the Apes is coming out. It's continuing the donation series we did a few years back. It is also currently available through our current donation drive. It is still going on through the end of July. The Silver Level was reviews of all five Pirates of the Caribbean films. Five totally new podcasts there. The Gold Level was reviews of the Alien films. The five reviews we did back in 2012. And then the review of Alien Covenant. All of those shows are out now. And then the Platinum Level, for donors of $40 or more, you get 20 podcasts because you get all the Alien shows, all the Pirate shows, and then all of the Planet of the Apes shows we did previously, covering the entire classic movie series, the Marky Mark reboot, and then the current series. And we'll be finishing that off with War for Planet of the Apes to review in just a couple weeks before even more theatrical releases. Dunkirk, Annabelle 2, The Dark Tower coming out a month from today, Inhumans, the Marvel TV pilot being shown in IMAX, Blade Runner 2049, so many trips to the theater that are just going to continue, and we thank our donors for that, and we thank our patrons for that. Our patrons last week got to get a special bonus review, Stuart, Jerry, and I reviewing Monster Trucks, and in two weeks, we're going to have another bonus review. Brock is returning to the show for a patron-exclusive review of Galaxy Quest. Stuart, Brock, and I, the ones who reviewed the Star Trek series, getting back together for this Star Trek parody. You can find out all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And before we go, since today is Independence Day here in the States, 4th of July, just remind everyone our 10th anniversary that we celebrated in May, 10th anniversary of Spider-Man 3, the very first show we put out, all of our previous donation shows are available through our Podbean page for individual donation. And that does include Independence Day and Independence Day Resurgence. I noticed the station is doing 24 hours of the original Independence Day today. And 
Resurgence keeps airing on, I think it's HBO, maybe Showtime. So if you've been watching those films and want to hear Jacob Stewart and I review them, you can find the details of our current donation drive, our patron, and links to every donation show we've done in the past at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate or click the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Thank you again to everyone who's donated, every one of our patrons. You guys make it possible for us to do this week after week. You guys excite me more than bell bottoms. And so Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until we return next week with Spider-Man Homecoming, bye-bye, baby. Sometimes all I want to do is head west on 20 in a car I can't afford with a plan I don't have. Just me, my music, and the road. I'd like that, too. Thank you for listening to Now Playing's Baby Driver Review. We hope you've enjoyed the show. So when was the last time you hit the road just for fun? Yesterday. I'm jealous. What you listening If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find hundreds of movie reviews in our archives at nowplayingpodcast.com. There you can hear reviews of other films such as The Fast and the Furious, Jason Bourne, Kingsman, X-Men, and more. And come back each week for another new movie review. That's some Oscar shit right there. And for Now Playing's 10th anniversary, we have released over 150 previously archived podcasts including reviews of Edgar Wright's films, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End. Do all your stories end up with somebody dying? Guess you just gotta find out, huh? Find those and over a hundred other bonus podcasts on our Podbean page and in the archives at nowplayingpodcast.com. Well, aren't you the lucky one? You can also join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews including Hook, Galaxy Quest, Monster Trucks, The Warriors, and Coherence. A link to our patron page is at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. I don't think I need to give you the speech about what happens when you say no, how I can break your legs and kill everyone you love, because you already know that, don't you? Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should, including Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Find some funky on there. Just in case we gotta rip this joint up. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss Baby Driver with other listeners. Are we in bed together now? Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You in? I'm in, baby. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. And that's what makes them the best. Now Playing is produced and edited by Arnie Carvalho. You're damn right. Now playing credit narration by Brock. That's right. You tell him, baby. 
The film Baby Driver and all audio clips and music used are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the film Baby Driver. Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of Baby Driver. Don't ask me that. That's a no-no's no-no, page one. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Why would I believe phones over here hear the goddamn word you said? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Well, ain't y'all cute? That's my baby. And this is the host who likes his peanut butter spread to the edges, Jacob. You had a way of making that sound dirty. Oh, did I? Darn. (laughs) Despicable Weekend, Despicable Me 3 will be number one. Banana, yeah. Yeah. Who who hates minions? Everybody loves minions. Uh, I hate them. (laughs) (laughs) I think the stuff that he does with Simon Frost. Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Yeah, goddammit. I knew I was going to do that wrong. And if, oh God, my point just flew away. Oh yeah. And if, God, I can't remember his name though. What's the dad's, foster dad's name? Doc or Joe? Joseph. Yeah. Yeah. As to why Baby says we're going to keep doing this job is because of fear of bats. That's the only, (laughs) that sounds funny. Like he's afraid of of winged creatures. Buddy does try to, Baby does try to sneak out all the fucking B names. Buddy, Baby, Bats. I think is at his best when he's working with Simon Pegg and Mark Frost. Not Mark Frost. That would be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) 